from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin. Welcome to The Set, a podcast that explores the motivations, experiences, and secrets to success from interesting people in and out of the field of surgery. With some humor mixed in, I'm your host, Sir Josh Mesrich, a transplant surgeon, part-time comedian, and somewhat successful fashion model in Madison, Wisconsin, home of the Badgers. The celebrity I most look like is Brad Pitt, although lately some people are saying I look more like Matthew McConaughey since I have been growing my hair out during COVID. All right, all right, all right, all right. When Ricky Gervais first called me to take over this podcast, I asked him, who the hell is this and how did you get this number? Eventually, I did agree to take it over, but on one condition, that I could interview my next guest, the one and only John Alverdi. It is true that John is one of the premier surgical scientists in our field and also a master surgeon and ICU attending, and he is decisive, confident, and always knows what to do. He has tons of awards and he also has accolades which are awards. He is the Sarah and Harold Lincoln Thompson Professor of Surgery and Executive Vice Chair of the Department of Surgery at the University of Chicago. He also has been funded by the NIH since 1999, and he also parties like it is 1999. I don't think he really does, although maybe he does. He is a mentor to so many. He was president of the Surgical Infection Society. He recently gave the esteemed Ravden Lecture at the American College of Surgery Clinical Conference in 2017. Yeah, that's all nice. But to me, when I think of John, I think of his sense of humor, his joy, well, and of course, his love of poop. Not long ago, I was talking to John about my own surgical career, which everyone would agree has been significantly more impressive than his own. I've done a lot of stuff and have a lot of accolades as well. As I remember it, he told me, I think we both went into surgery for the same reason, to make a lot of money. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. That's not what he said. He said, we both wanted to be comedians and show me another career where everyone laughs at your jokes, whether you were in the OR or rounding in the ICU. I was thinking probably there are some easier ways to get a laugh. And come to think of it, I don't think that many people even laugh at my jokes. But in general, I think he's probably right. There are two memories for me that come to mind when I reminisce about my years with John the first took place when I was an intern at the University of Chicago in 1997. I was on John's service, and for whatever reason, he had taken an interest in enteric fistulas. For those of you out there who aren't surgeons and subscribe to this podcast for the humor, there could be something wrong with you. No, that's not what I was going to say. There's nothing funnier than fistulas. No, that's not right either. Fistulas are horrible, actually. They're nightmares. They are holes in the bowel, small or large bowel, that drain right out onto the skin and out of the patient constantly. The fluid, which often is called succus if it's from the small bowel, or poop if it's from the colon, is so caustic and smelly, it tends to eat away at the skin of the patient, who often ends up with a big open wound. Fistulas are extremely difficult to close, and the patients are miserable. So when John took an interest, what that meant is every surgeon who had ever heard of John, which was everyone, started sending him patients with draining wounds. While John got all the glory, actually there was no glory, the intern on the service spent his or her time managing very extensive wounds and very difficult sick patients. Well, one particular night we got a transfer from far away, almost a world away, 
someone who had undergone some questionable trauma and another questionable operation that may have resulted in missing a kidney, or at least that's how I remember it. He showed up in the middle of the night, very unstable, with an open belly with multiple holes in his bowel. Oh, John, by the way, I don't think you warned me he was coming, so that was a surprise. Anyways, when I went in to see him, I was quite shocked. For the uninitiated, the idea of an open belly means that I found myself staring at his bowels, which looked strangely like Medusa's head, swirling around in the belly, squirting succus out of the holes. I'll never forget that sight. But over the next six months, I learned so much about critical care, nutrition, surgery, and hope from this unlucky patient and his amazing surgeon. Yes, I mean me. No, I mean John Alberti. Amazingly, we got them all fixed up and back together again. The second memory is almost more of a vision, a vision of John Alverdi in the operating room. He is like a hilarious conductor, standing on his step with his laparoscopic instruments, controlling the room with confidence, compassion, and of course, comedy. Raise the bed, watch the feet, arms, chest, ET tube, watch the Foley catheter, pulse ox, Mayo stand, watch the scrub tech, surgeon, footstool, watch the anesthesia tech, stop. Lower the bed, watch the feet, arms, chest, ET tube. But he was really funny when he did it. You get the picture. Trust me, he's so fun, so funny, and so wonderful. I always love scrubbing with Dr. Alverdi. So without further ado, let me introduce John Alverdi. Let's learn about his life, his choices, his research, his love of poop, and get some advice from the master. Oh, and one thing before we begin. It has come to my attention that the word accolade is actually pronounced accolade. So if that was bothering you, I guess that's really your problem. Okay, I am so excited for our guest today, John Alverdi. Welcome to the set. Thank you, Josh. Good to be here. It is so great to talk to you. I tell you, when I think back to University of Chicago, you're like the first person I think of. That's fantastic. Glad to be here. And I'm sure that you must have the same thoughts as well. Well, I, I, I've met you, right? Did, did we train together? I can't remember. <laughs> I think it was something like that. I think I trained you, actually. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get started. Let me start from the beginning because um, I know you had a sort of non-traditional path. So maybe just start by telling us where you grew up, how you got interested in medicine and, and your path there. I grew up in Chicago on the north side in the city proper and, uh, you know, went to all Catholic schools, Catholic grammar school, Catholic high school, Catholic college, then a year at a Catholic medical school, which, you know, really should put me in full-time psychiatric therapy. <laughs> <laughs> but somehow, somehow, I managed to to sleep out of that. And I was a I uh, I went to college at Marquette University in Milwaukee, and ah, I was, Wisconsin. I, yeah, Wisconsin. Yeah. And I was a Spanish major, and really had no intention of going to medical school. But you know, my father was a son of an immigrant who he watched his father lose his job as a bricklayer during the Depression. They had to move out of their house and live with, you know, relatives. And, you know, from my father's standpoint, you could be a doctor, a dentist, or an engineer, but every other profession, you, you would end up, you know, bankrupt and not able to support your family. You know, I have to tell you, this is very, growing up as a Jewish kid in New Jersey, I feel, I feel <laughs> uh, some real similarities there. Yeah, you know, so, so, so medicine, I, I really... I, I applied to Georgetown's Foreign Affairs School and really wanted to go be a diplomat. 
Mm. Learn a few languages, live abroad. And that just, my dad looked at me like I had two heads and said, (laughs) you need to go to medical school. So then I, you know, kind of went back and retooled. And I had a cousin who had been trying to get into medical school forever. And he was in Guadalajara, Mexico. He said, come down. So I, I went down there to visit him and I never left, you know, and three years later, you know, I found myself back in the States, you know, uh, only knowing anatomy and, you know, lab values in Spanish uh, thrown into a, you know, uh, at Loyola's uh, medical school, thrown into an environment where, you know, things look kind of funny to me. I, you know, when I was in medical school in Mexico, they would send us every six months to these rural, you know, running water, you know, uh, places. And I watched all these babies being born and they were all normal, you know, and they were just born in their home with a midwife. And I remember getting to Loyola. <laughs> I came in and I scrubbed in, in this room because I was doing an obstetrical rotation and I bumped my elbow against the, against the IV pole. And the attending like yelled at me, like, you want to break sterile? You know, they shave in the perineum. They're giving this woman an enema. They took a betadine soaked sponge and, you know, like sponge it out her vagina. And I'm looking at this going, do these people know how like 90% of children are born in the world? <laughs> that's incredible so you really just stumbled into medical school down in guadalajara it was sort of it was a complete afterthought and you know to to end up you know at the university of chicago and sort of end up as a you know sort of an endowed tenured faculty member at a prestigious department of surgery is just it's you know there's a book called um i think it's called the drunkers the drunkards walk you know, it's about, you know, when you look back and you kind of examine your life, especially when you get to be my age, you know, I'm 68, you start to look back and you think, how, how did I end up here? You know what I mean? <laughs> that is incredible. Yeah. Your, your Spanish was good enough to fully, um, you know, fully do med school in Spanish? Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I, I was pretty fluent when I went down there, you know, because I, I was a Spanish major. I took, you know, four years of you know, pretty intense grammar and literature, and we had to read a lot of books in Spanish. And so I felt I felt pretty confident. It just got better when I was down there. In fact, I lived out my dream, which was to go to Madrid and give a lecture, you know, on, on the topics of my research in Spanish. And I did it a couple of years ago, and it was a real kick. You know, I was, like, invited to give this plenary invited keynote at the Association of Spanish surgeons. That that would probably be the pinnacle. Other than knowing you yeah. and have trained you, that would be considered the pinnacle of my career. I mean, that is pretty good. I, I don't know if you knew this about me, but I was a Russian language and literature major. I tried to give some lectures in Russian, but I'm pretty sure I didn't know what I was saying. So Yeah. Well, you know, when you learn the Krebs cycle and Michaelis Metin kinetics in Spanish, you know, you get you get kind of pretty good at <laughs> I guess so. So did you have to redo med school here or did it, was it okay back then? Yeah, no, it was okay back then. And I just did like a, a one year at Loyola's school to, to kind of get familiar, you know, mm-hmm. with the, the lingo and, you know, get up to snuff. And then I had to take, you know, all the parts of the boards and pass everything. And then, you know, I ended up at the University of Chicago only because I trained at Michael Reese, which was the only place that would, that like gave me an interview. Mm. You know, because back then, you know, if you if you went to a, a medical school like that and you were an American, you were sort of considered a black sheep, you know. Right. So, but it was it worked out fine. They trained me well, and you know, I spent a, a year in at UCSF and went in the lab, and I'm like, you know, I got into the lab, and I'm like, wait a minute, 
people actually pay you to do this. <laughs> you, you sit around, you, you kill mice and rats, you write papers, and, and like people pay you for this? And I'm like, this is so much fun. And then I knew I was, you know. You were hooked. It's kind of, yeah, I was hooked. You know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, the time you know you're going to do surgery, you just kind of know. And then I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm not going to practice medicine and, you know, not have a lab. Well, I was going to ask you that. What, when did you decide to do surgery? And was it like, it was love at first sight or? Uh, yeah, I think it was. But I, I always say to students, you know, and I'm sure this was the case with you. I'm like, you know, you go into the operating room for the first time, you know, or during your rotation and you say to yourself, this is really amazing. You know, look what these people are doing, but this life is ridiculous. I hate the risk here. I, you know, this is just too much. And you don't do it. Or you say, these people are all nuts. I'm not standing on my feet getting here at five o'clock in the morning. I'm not doing this. I'm risk aversive. Forget it. Or like you and I, you get in there and you go, wait a minute, who would practice medicine and not do this? <laughs> you know, and that's most, I think, people that go into surgery, they're just like, you know, hooked, right? This is it for them. I have sort of a strange relationship with surgery because I think everyone I grew up with is sort of a shock that that's the field I chose. Like I was so messy and I didn't do anything with my hands. And I, I really like the challenge of it, you know, to see, like, could I do this? And, you know, there was something intriguing. In some ways, it seems a mismatch to my personality, I feel like. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. You were, like, pretty enthusiastic. You loved being there. You know, you were just, you know, on the go. You, you know, you can always tell surgery residents, right? So, some are sort of doing the work, but they just don't look happy. Right. Or, you know, there are other residents, they're just like, hey, you know, bring it on. Let's get here at four in the morning. This is awesome, you know, and every day they're just, they're happy. You know, it's not work for them, you know, and you seem like that person to me anyway. I was definitely all in and no question about it. And I'm generally a happy person, but, you know, I, I worked like crazy, like we all did back then, but then like I would get home and I never paid the rent and I would sit in an apartment that was dark because I hadn't paid the utilities and I would lie there at night like, am I a fraud, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, everybody goes through that. And so then your career, you do critical care. You do, you know, I guess mostly minimally invasive now. Is that right? Yeah. So I was well-trained in general surgery. You know, back then we just, you know, we operated night and day on call every other night. It was, it was insane. And it was unnecessary, you know. Uh, basically, when we look back, all the time we put in was, was pretty much unnecessary. And it's, you know, so much better now. There's, you know, curriculum based and, you know, pathways to mastery and much, it's much more formal and didactic. But back then you just worked really hard like you did. And I could, I felt pretty confident doing pretty much everything. Uh, and then at the time, the person that really, you know, had a big imprint on my career left and became the chair at the Harborview Hospital at the University of Washington in Seattle and vice chair of the department, uh, Chip Rice, Charles Rice. And he left and he ran the ICU and the trauma service. And he basically said, I'm leaving. Uh, you should take my job. And so, you know, it was, it was, I don't know, it was 1986. And I, you know, my boss said to me, I don't want you to leave. I know you're going to get a lot of job offers. Just stay. So I, I told my wife, I said, I have a job, you know, we don't have to move. And she said, how much are they paying you? And I go, I really have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> she goes, you know, are we going to be able to like eat and, you know, buy a house? And I'm like, I think, I think they'll take care of me, you know? <laughs> and so, 
So I did, I, you know, I was not, you know, formally trained in critical care medicine, but I, I had done a lot of it. And then I did a lot of it. I ran both the medical and the surgical ICU at Michael Reese. And then I sat for the boards. You could father into the boards back then. And I had a certificate. I have it on my wall. Certificate number 20. You know, I was the 20th person to to be boarded in, uh, you know, uh, added certificate in critical care in the United States. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Do you still do critical care now? No, I, I did it when you got there, but uh, I, I stopped doing it. And I just basically uh, concentrated on, you know, when I got to U of C, nobody wanted to do bariatric surgery. And, you know, nobody wanted to do minimally invasive surgery. And I remember, uh, did you train with George Block or was he gone by the time you got there? No, he had died before I got there. When did he die? I don't remember when he died, but... Probably just a few years beforehand. But anyway, when he got really sick and he wasn't operating more, Gewirtz says to me, can you please um, ask George Block to just come in the OR and ask him for some help? You know, because he's feeling depressed. He had a second heart attack. He was in the ICU for a month. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing this lap missing. Half the stomach's up in the chest, and I'm, you know, doing it laparoscopically, and I got the whole sack pulled down, and I go, hey, Dr. Block, come in here. You know, uh, do you think I've mobilized the esophagus enough? And he looks at me, he looks at all the instruments, you know, the, the ports and the whole thing, and he looks at me, he goes, Alverti, this is an amoral operation, and he leaves. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that began my career at the University of Chicago. Yeah, right. You know what? I, I don't personally know George Block, but I've heard so many stories. And I think my favorite one, I think some people were afraid of him and he was doing some sort of neck case. And there was a med student in the room and apparently he was positioning the patient and he yelled, somebody get me a damn donut. And the med student went running out and came back a few minutes later with some napkins and he had bought like three donuts down in the bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> and he brought him into the OR. That sounds right. So um, let me ask you this. Were you doing research the whole way through, like when you started and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So, so one of the reasons, I, you know, Michael Reese Hospital was a thousand bed private hospital, but it was had a 50 year affiliation with the University of Chicago. All the med students and residents went back and forth and all the fellows rotated through there. And at the time I trained there, it had the most number of NIH grants of any private hospital. So the reason I stayed is the chair there at the time said to me, stay, you know, take Chip Wright's job. He gave me a big startup package, you know, discretionary dollars. Uh, and it just seemed like, well, you know, can't lose here. And he looked at me and, and, I, and I remember saying this to him, you'll love this. So what is my job? And he looks at me and he goes, your job is to seek truth. <laughs> I mean, there it is. There it is. And, and he looks at me, he goes, you got about five, maybe six years to, so that everybody knows who you are and it's your work and it's original, you know, and it's exciting. And after that, it's over, you know. So, uh, yeah, I, I basically took the money, you know, and I, I basically I, I don't even remember how much I spent. I spent a lot. I bought cages, and a bunch of equipment, and had a you know a lab tech of my own. And I would just spend as much money as I wanted, and he'd backfill for about five years. And, you know, uh, then when I, when Michael Reese kind of started falling apart, actually, I almost went to the University of Wisconsin, to tell you the truth. Oh. Yeah, you know, Folker Belzer was there, you know, and wanted me to come. But I, I wanted to stay in Chicago because my parents were here and my wife's parents were here. And so 
you know, I, I went to UC. But again, you know, I, I wouldn't have gone had they not, you know, given me a lab, you know, a tech or a big startup package to, you know, keep things going till I got NIH funded. And, you know, I had a startup, startup grant. They were called R2029s back then. Like, I guess was the equivalent of a K award or something like that, you know, and then got an R01 and it's been funded ever since, you know, every year I keep saying, you know, like all of us do, I go, okay, this is it. This is the last year. They're, they're, this is the last one. This is the last one. They're never going to refund this. You know, I, you know, I suck, you know, right. and, and, and you're, you know, cycle after cycle, you know. Like what year did you start on staff? And then when did you get your first major grant? Do you remember that? Yeah, let's see. I started in 93. And I think it was 99. Oh, well, no, 93, but it was not, it was, it was a few years later that I got that R29 or whatever it was. It was through the Digestive Disease Research Center Corps. You know, they, they give out pilot and feasibility at, to, to, you know, early investigators. And I got that, but it has to be, it was one of these things where it had to be um, reviewed by an external panel at the NIH. You know, and and then that got kept me going for a few more years, and then I got an R one. Got you. So I I probably was there when you got the R one because I came in ninety seven. And you know what I was thinking? I worked with you quite a bit in the ICU and in the OR. I always loved it, just because I'm a crazy guy and love crazy people. But I didn't even know you had a lab. Like <laughs> I was, you know, I I feel like I was this immature guy who came and was working like crazy and everything was just about the patients in the hospital, you know? And I didn't, I didn't even realize it. Yeah. And I, I I've never ever forgiven you for have, uh, for going to Boston and not working in my lab. I, I still resent you for this day because of that. I know. I feel like if I had worked in your lab, I probably, I, mean, I wouldn't be as big a celebrity as I am now, but no, no. You know, th- things would be different. No, you, you'd certainly be a lot handsomer. I would say that. <laughs> You might, not, you might not know I've been growing my hair out during COVID, and um, I think I look like, you know, like Matthew McConaughey. Kind of. I came downstairs the other day, and I was in workout clothes, and my wife said, you know, you look like Richard Simmons. So yeah, <laughs> could be time to get it cut. I don't know. I know. When I think of you, I always think, you know, it, it, for you is either being an academic surgeon, surgeon scientist, or, or an underwear supermodel. That's just, <laughs> yeah. right. I, I think of you know, there's probably no other choices in your life but those two. I know the pressure. The pressure is intense. <laughs> but I do remember this one thing. Speaking of looks, I remember you coming into the operating room and we we're doing some you know open abdominal case, and you looked sad. And, and correct me if I have this story, uh, if I'm if I'm telling this right. And it was your brother Ben who was on the cover of People magazine as one of the sexiest men alive. <laughs> and you walk into the room, and I'm like, Josh, you know, because you're always, you know, you're ebullient, you know, optimistic self. And I go, Josh, what's wrong? He goes, my brother's on the cover of People. He goes, and I'm going to tell you something, Dr. Alberti, I'm one of the most sexiest men alive. Not my brother. I am so much more handsome than my brother. Like, bar none, hands down. And I started busting out laughing. I just, you know, it's totally you remember true. That story? <laughs> that story? I do remember it. And it, it's actually factual because Ben somehow was in People Magazine's, you know, sexiest bachelors. Oh, and, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, and and everybody knows that I'm the sexiest Mesrich. So yeah. I don't see how that was possible. But yeah, that was Ben's uh, that was Ben's crowning crowning victory, I would say. 
<laughs> it was so funny. It was so funny. Let me ask you this. Were you studying microbiome like all along, bacteria in the gut? Because that wasn't really in back then, whereas now it's such a huge topic. It, it goes like this. So because I was a, you know, surgeon intensivist and I had seen so many patients, you know, that transferred in or develop, you know, sepsis, multiple organ failure, call it what you want. And there was no source of the infection. I said to myself, this has to be coming from somewhere. It just can't be runaway inflammation. You know, it can't be, well, I had a bad trauma. I had a bad infection. Now it's all better. And now, you know, my neutrophils and macrophages are on steroids running amok and killing me. It didn't appeal to me. And I said, there must be something else going on. And I was interested in how under the circumstances of critical illness, when you're feeding everything intravenously, you're on 10 antibiotics and all these pressors being taken back to the operating, how can the microbes in your gut, whichever ones are left over, how can they actually survive? Don't they want to like kill the host? Say, look, you're keeping this beast alive. You know, prior to this, he or she was eating three square meals a day. They were staying warm. You know, they were taking good care of themselves. And now you got me in this suspended animation. The only way out of here is to kill the host. And then hopefully I'll feed off its carcass and a bird will eat me and I'll be in a new, fresh, healthy host. (laughs) Yeah. So I told that story to myself, you know, and then I started studying how bacteria would respond inside of a host, uh, you know, in that case, a rat that you surgically stressed. I'm like, do these bacteria sense some sort of signal emitted by the host that activates their virulent circuitry? And I, you know, started working on that. I worked with E. coli. That grant did not get funded. They looked at me and they go, this is a joke, of course, you know, it's, it's very true today. They go, E. coli, I wrote this beautiful grant, E. coli is not a pathogen. Why are you studying E. coli? In the gut, you know, it's a pathogen when it gets out of the gut. It's not a pathogen inside the gut. It's there all the time, which is, you know, totally untrue now. I said, all right, you, you want a pathogen? So then I started studying Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And there was a National Academy member, famous scientist, Harvard-trained uh, microbial geneticist that you see. And it was just long, you know, people always say to me, how'd you do it? And I go, long, long conversations with brilliant scientists at the University of Chicago, two three-hour lunches, two three-hour coffee conversations, thought experiments, and then you generate killer preliminary data that advance a mechanistic understanding of a complex problem, and then you get funded. I go, this idea of just writing one, you know, not everyone can be Josh Measurist <laughs> and get funded out of the cooker, you know. But, uh, you know, th- that's at least... You know, for those of us that are don't, you know, have an IQ of 198 like you, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, you know uh, that's the way to do it. And, and I was just lucky. You know, that's what I say. When you look back, you feel like kind of, wow, how did I run into these people? You know, why the hell would James Shapiro even talk to me? You know, I had to buy him lunch, of course. You know, you have to always buy something. You know, why would he even talk to me for three hours? Didn't the guy have something better to do? You know? <laughs> <laughs> did he, yeah, just to be clear. It wasn't, I know my path looked easy from the outside, but the secret was that I got my brother to write the grants. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't really. But um, did you, 
are you the kind of guy, like, did you always have confidence you were going to, it was going to work out? Or did you have a lot of stress about running out of money or the kind of things that most of us worry about? Yeah, I would say I, you know, I was the latter, not the former. I, I was the guy that worried less about getting an NIH grant and more worried about generating that, that killer data, you know, like an experiment has to be compelling, right? It, it has to be experimentally designed so the result is compelling and reproducible and important. You know, I always say there are three types of research, right? There's fundable research, there's publical, publishable research, and then there's important research. And we all know the difference, you know? And so I'm like, it, it's got to look important and it's got to be transformative to the field. So while everybody at the time was studying, gee, how does this pathogen bind to like, you know, pathogen recognition, toll four receptors and others on the, on the epithelium or the immune cell? And I'm like, that's really cool. They're all looking at the downstream signals after the bug binds to the host receptor. I'm like, what about in the other direction? Nobody's looking there. What, what about the host soluble factors that are released binds to the bug? And I hit it. I found it. I found it in Pseudomonas aeruginosa with a lot of help. But I designed the experiments. Nobody, nobody designed experiments like this. I mean, we stressed animals and crushed up their intestines and, you know, separated out the components and made reporter strains of Pseudomonas uh, that had GFP, you know, bound to the uh, promoters of this quorum sensing circuit. And, you know, the bug started turning green from the tissues of the stressed mice versus the non-stressed mice. And I'm like, there it is. There's something in there. And then we identified cytokines and then identified the binding sites and, you know, had a paper in science and that's about all it took. I mean, that's an incredible, there are very few surgeons, you know, that have a paper in science, just that. But if I, let me paraphrase some of your work and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, but um, my understanding about kind of some of your most impactful work is that essentially like with when we sew the bowels together, sometimes they leak, anastomotic leaks. And you've shown that in many cases, the bacteria, the pseudomonas becomes pathologic and causes that leak. Is that a really poor man's description? Right. right. So once it became clear to me that a wounded animal, right, releases compounds that turn on bacteria to express harmfulness or virulence, right? Mm-hmm. Struck me in it, and I'm, I'm most recently known for this anastomotic leak project. It struck me at some point that you know the anastomosis is a wound, and there are bacteria there all the time, and most of the time they heal, and when they don't heal, you know, professors at morbidity mortality conference you sit there and expostulate. Oh, it's ischemia, it's tension. Why did you use three O? I use four O. You should have used absorbable. And I'm sitting there thinking that can't be. Where it. Did you staple it? Did you sew it? Yeah. I'm like, these are master surgeons. These, these surgeons don't get a leak because they sewed it wrong. They get a leak because something else is going on there. And I'm like, can't be just the presence of bacteria. It's got to be the wrong bacteria in the wrong place at the wrong time with the right environmental cues that activate those bacteria, which was the basis of my work, you know, 20 years ago, right? right. And, I, and right. So, so this woman, Andrea Olivas, who uh, went to medical school at UCSF, and wanted to go into colorectal surgery. She came to me, she said, I really like your work, but I want to go into colorectal surgery. 
So I want to work in your lab for two years and, you know, do a project related to the microbiome. And she really didn't know what she wanted to do. And I said, how about an astomotic leak? And she built the, together, we built the experimental platform in the animal that proved it beyond a shadow of a doubt. And, you know, then, then she left and did pathology. You know, that's what, that's the effect I have on, on women. Yeah, I know. You know they leave, they're like, you know, they, they leave my lab and they're like, never again, you know. <laughs> right, I, that sounds familiar to my own dating life. But I don't know that. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by eGut Harmony, a new dating service founded by Dr. John Alverdi. Dr. Alverdi knows dating is hard. He also knows how busy we all are these days. We don't have time for a bunch of lunch dates with people you would never want to be seen with. Using his patented technology that he spent his career developing, John will help you find your soulmate within weeks. Unlike other dating services that have you filling out forms about your likes and dislikes, or even downloading pictures, all John asks for is a sample of your stool. His technicians who work 24 hours a day will process it and find you a match almost instantly. When you go on your first date, you will feel like you have known your date forever. And if you happen to inadvertently pass gas, don't worry, they will think it was them. And for the month of February, in honor of Valentine's, Dr. Alverdi is offering his Have the Confidence of a Celebrity Special. Have you ever wondered how Brad Pitt can always look so confident and comfortable in his own skin? It's because he knows his poop doesn't stink. After years of study, John has shown that celebrities and rock stars have a low proportion of Pseudomonas and E. coli in their stool. And we can give you the same confidence. This month only, John will perform a celebrity stool transplant on you prior to your date. So you can roll in feeling like a rock star, a movie star, or even a Kardashian. Don't underestimate the power of poop. And remember our motto, to be a rock star, you gotta smell like a rock star. This technology has not been evaluated by the FDA or anyone else. Results can differ. If you have a bad response, well, what did you expect? It is what it is. Well, you know what I like most about your research? Um, we all agonize about our own complications and we feel guilty and to blame. And with your research, I can blame the bacteria rather than my own technique, which is brilliant. It's perfect because, you know, like when I give grand rounds and I, you know, I've, I've been given it all over the United States and, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm like people's priest or their rabbi, you know, they, <laughs> they come up to me afterwards. I'm, I'm not kidding you. Like famous institutions that will remain nameless here, you know, and like heads of colorectal surgery come up to me and go, you know, John, I operate on the president's wife. Perfect anastomosis. Residents call me up to the room, you know, on post-op day four and go, something's wrong. You know, and I took her back. She was in the ICU for a month. Oh, my God, it was embarrassing. It was terrible. You know, and I know they did nothing wrong. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, they've been doing these things, you know, their whole career and they're master surgeons. So, you know, in an astomotic leak, there's, you know, there are two people that suffer, right? The surgeon and the patient, but the patient first. And the surgeon said, because you blame yourself. Is there going to be a trial? Or are you doing a trial on doing something with that bacteria to prevent leaks? Yeah. So we, we have, you know, I actually have a company now. I guess this is in full disclosure um, mm. um, that we've synthesized a compound, de novo synthesized a compound that interferes with that sort of molecular dialogue that goes on between the host the injured host tissues and the bacteria. We, we try to dope the local environment so that the bacteria can't sense those signals and hence they don't turn on 
those enzymes that, you know, chew through the tissue, the beautiful anastomosis that people like Dr. Mesrich <laughs> make there at the Hepatico J. And, and it seems to uh, be universally applied because it, it, it keys in on, you know, an interesting way of doing it. It's not really a drug, but you ought to think of the host pathogen interaction and the local environment as a biologic marketplace, right? Where people are competing for space and resources and nutrients and other things. And if you can, if you can dope that environment, rich in resources, which is what this polymer that we have created does, then the bacteria, they don't care what incoming signals are. So one of the ways, you'll love this, Josh, one of the ways I contextualize this and or anthropomorphize this argument, which is, you know, you should never do as a scientist because you get in a lot of trouble. But I say, like, imagine, you know, if in an underserved country that's really struggling with civil war, you just dropped a bunch of computers, everybody could go to school for free, everybody got a TV set and a warm house, would, would anyone fight? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and the answer is, you know, you know, would renegade, you know, fringe rebel groups actually survive in that environment because people are like, leave me alone. You know, I want my kids to go to school and I got a job to get up in the morning. I don't have time for this stuff, you know. And so that, you know, it, that really pisses off basic scientists when they do stuff like that. Don't, don't ever say stuff like that. <laughs> You know, when you anthropomorphize an argument, they, you know, they're like, oh, that Alberti, uh, he thinks he knows everything. His he's, work, not he's not one of us. Yeah. I learned this other thing at UFC. You know, if you want to insult a scientist, yeah. I learned this thing on the Committee on Promotions. You say their work is derivative. <laughs> have you heard that? Have you heard that? I don't think I have heard it before. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's got five papers in science. Ah. Uh, that work is derivative. Oh, that's, that's it. You just crushed them. So I've heard um, in other talks, you talked before about, you know, what it takes to make it as a surgeon scientist. And you've w- used words like obsession and delusion. <laughs> yeah, right. The reason I actually love that is, well, not only do I already know that you're deluded, but, <laughs> <laughs> but more importantly, when my brother talks about making it as a writer, he uses those exact same two words. He says you have to be obsessed and you have to have a delusion to think that, you know, to be able to think you're going to make it in that crazy world. And I think it's, I think that's true, right? I think you have to have a certain drive that borders on obsession to be a practicing surgeon and run a lab. Do you still, does that? Yeah, no, I think, I think you're spot on. In fact, I I sort of stole that from, I think we've talked about this guy before. Was your father a physicist first before he became a radiologist? He was an electrical engineer and an inventor. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. A radiologist, right. right. Right, right. I remember you telling me that story. But you know the guy, uh, Richard Feynman? The, uh, of physicist? course. Yeah, of yeah. course. Love the guy. And in yeah. one of his books, he said something like, you know, uh, to be a successful scientist, you have to delude yourself. He said, because if you start thinking about what it's going to take to prove your theory right, and you realize how infinitesimally small the chances are that you're right, you'll stop right away. You will just give up. So it is, it is a problem. Maybe that's what your brother is saying is, is that when you think about writing a bestseller like he's done, I mean, a bestseller, lots of people can write a book, but write a book that engages the mind of people and you know, engages them, you know, both at the cortical level and at the midbrain level, that, that takes a lot. And, and he's done it and it does, you know, it takes a, 
you know, to think you're going to make it at the beginning, I don't care where you went to school or how smart you are, because there are a lot of smart people out there that have gone to amazing schools. Most of them can't do it. Right. You know, I, I think I so totally agree. I let you, I, I love Feynman and if anyone out there is looking for a book, surely you're joking, Mr. Oh, fantastic. But he does always write about how when you do an experiment, you're testing a hypothesis. And if it goes the way you expect, it doesn't mean you've proven that it's real. It just means you have yet to prove that it's not. Yeah. He obviously hold, held himself to a high standard. But I think you're absolutely right about this. And I, and I think we both probably talked to residents that are thinking about running a lab. And I do think it's doable. but it's in my opinion, I don't know if you agree, it's not it's important to have protected time, but it's not the protected time that's going to make you succeed. And while lots of people will say, well, I failed, but I just didn't have the time to do it. It's more about having this obsession that every spare minute you're thinking about the lab, you're thinking about the experiments, you're fighting for it, right? I mean, isn't that what it is? I think again, you're you're right on, uh, you're spot on because and one of the problems about you know, this being a surgeon scientist, that's, I think, different than being a physician scientist, is it's so easy to be seduced by the operating room. I mean, it's a theater, which is why you, you and I like it, because we always yeah. want to be in a theater. I mean, let's face it, you know. And, and, and when you get seduced by that theater, you're like, oh, you know, oh, this is fantastic. And, you know, the residents are clapping. The students think you're amazing. You know, the, the, the patients are hugging and, you know, you afterwards and the families love you, you know, um, and, 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 and you just get sucked in. And the fact of the matter, and Jeff Matthews, you know, our chair, you know, he says, you know, it's, it's easy to do surgery, but it's much harder to get to do surgery. You know, like the training, you have to be, you know, really good student to get into a, medical school, to get into a residency program, to get the right fellowships, to get out. You have to be a really good student. But actually what you're doing, I mean, you know, when you go to some meetings and people are talking about using 7-0 versus 8-0, or I like to bring my ruling up this way, that way, you're like, really, that's all you got? <laughs> you know, I mean, honestly, you know, after physical chemistry, organic chemistry, physics, you know, all the stuff we've gone through, that's it. You know, I want to do an anti-colic versus a retrocolic. I mean, come on. You know, it's important to pay attention to those details. But, you know, it's such so much more gratifying to create new knowledge that might have an impact for generations. And I think that's what sucked you and I in. And the ability to resist just being, just operating all the time. Because that's hard. And it, it does always pull at you too, doesn't it? Always. Yeah, I mean, I think that's half the story. Again, if there are a lot of residents listening, um, I think most of my audience is celebrities, but there might be a few residents listening. And um, like the regard, I don't always know what protected time means, and I'm not saying you shouldn't get it, you should. But like, regardless of that, there always are going to be cases pulling you into the OR or, you know, patient issues pulling you in. And so it's really about how you use your time more than anything else, you know? how you find a way to do the clinical work when you need to, and then put the lab first as much as yeah. possible. So what you're, what you're trying to say is it's how you choose to use your time. And it is a choice. So many people, and I'm sure you've already had this happen to you, 
you know, they'll come up to you, they'll see that you're, you know, NIH funded, you're running a lab, you're operating on patients, and they'll go, you know, I, I just don't have time to do research, you know. It's, it's great you're doing research, Josh, you're in the right environment. I don't have time, you know, I operate on the Pope, you know, I did a liver transplant on, uh, you know, the mayor, uh, you know, I'm too busy. I, you know, I got, I got all the nurses are sending me that, you know, they make excuses because maybe they feel they can do it. And, you know, like, like you and I said, you know, pretty much if you really want to do it and you set yourself up right, you can do it, but they've chosen not to, but they somehow feel like if they're at a university hospital, they, they feel, I don't know, a little guilty about it. Right. Right, I know what you mean, and it's it's not for everyone, right? It's, oh uh, no, yeah, it's a choice. I mean, that's what I say. You and I have chosen to use our time to both be competent clinical surgeons and masters at the operations that we do, and uh, credible surgeon scientists that are advancing the field. You know, uh, the field of surgical biology. You know. And, and we feel satisfied by it and we feel we're able to manage it. But, you know, you have to be in an environment like Wisconsin or Chicago where your partners and your chairs and your section chiefs understand that, you know, you have dual duties. Yes. Uh, and, you know, uh, so it can't, it can't be done everywhere. That's so true. I, I uh, It is critical that you're at a place that values, if you're going to do research, that it's valued and it's supported with resources. Otherwise, it's going to be really difficult. There's no doubt about that. Do you? I, my my gut feeling. I like using gut with you because yeah, of course, yeah. You got my own feeling. Yeah, my my because <laughs> when I say gut, you're picturing all the bacteria there. Yeah. You're not. Yeah. But like my suspicion as the way things are going in healthcare with the merging of the medical schools and the hospitals is that there's going to be a smaller number of places that can support surgeon scientists and the majority of places won't. Isn't that the direction it's going to go or do you disagree with that? No, 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 I agree. I agree. But, you know, um, in, you know, you know, this as well as anybody, you know, science isn't a part-time job. It, it's hard, you know, and, you know, unless you're doing the kind of work you and I do, nobody really understands what it's like, you know, to get, a revision back, asking you to do a lot more, many more experiments. Not everybody, I should say. And then, and then do a second revision. And, you know, they ask for even more. Ah, that protein you pulled down was nice, but you, can you, can you measure the phosphorylated part of the protein? Oh, can you knock that gene out? Why don't you, you know, use some siRNA and silence that gene in those neutrophils or those max or something to really invoke this and, you know, recomplement the, you know, like in bacteria, we complement that bacteria with the gene you knocked out of the extra chromosomal plasmid so we can really know you didn't knock anything else out, you know, all this stuff. And then it takes forever, you know, and, and, and there's no guarantee. And you're like, why, you know, I'll give you an example, you know, in the anastomotic leak model, we, we had one paper, this is, you know, in no deference, I hope this doesn't get me in trouble, in annals of surgery, but we had one half of the paper go to annals of surgery and one half go to AJP uh, GI. And the annals of surgery paper, and it had a lot of molecular detail to it, it was like, oh, this is great work, blah, 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 this, that, and the other, you know, can you change the discussion around? And and then the AJP paper took two revisions. You know, they just, they browbeated us, right? And AJP is good, but it's not, you know, it's not top shelf, right? 
Mm-hmm. You know, but you can see the difference between submitting some, and we it was basically the same. It was the same uh, resident that did that work over two years, and he split it up into two monographs. and And the guy's an amazing scientist and a brilliant guy. But you know, you get these reviews back, and you realize, does everybody else know how much we struggle for these things, or did they just read the conclusions and go, oh, "Yeah, I get it"? I, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. When I submit a paper, it generally just gets accepted, so I don't... Yeah, I know. I know that. <laughs> no, I was going to say, usually when I submit a paper, it's the kind of journal you have to pay them a bunch of money and they... <laughs> <laughs> I think I got an ad for a new journal, Annals of Surgery, but one of the ends was missing. <laughs> right. you know, fake journals that are so close to the, to the real... It's ridiculous. So let me ask you questions. Do you, with the microbiome, just very briefly, do you think it's going to get to the point where, like pre-op, you're able to check someone's microbiome and say, oh, you're not healthy enough for surgery, or we should do this manipulation, or maybe we save, we take stool samples from everyone? Is it going to be that clinically applicable, do you think? Uh, m- most definitely. Um, I would say that um, the overwhelming majority today, you know, in, in the era of asepsis, where we you know, pre-screen patients, make sure they're not frail, uh, you know, give them bowel preps, give them IV antibiotics, whatever we do to, to tune them up. You know, infection remains the Achilles heel of what we do. You know, once a patient gets a bad infection, uh, you know, they, they can become disabled from it and, uh, you know, and even die. And so, I, you know, we wrote this paper, speaking of annals of surgery, we wrote a paper in annals of surgery called Assessing Microbiome Readiness for Surgery. You know, how mm-hmm. do you do that? <clears throat> you just can't measure everything and you get this big, you know, rainbow of microbes there. And they're like, well, what does this mean? So we try to boil it down to a signature. And there is a way to assess it. I mean, we did the study in mice, but there's certainly a way to um to look at one's microbiome and say, you know, it's just not ready. And you can change it so fast, Josh, just with diet. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that's what we did in that paper. We were able to show that when mice are on a Western diet for six weeks and you operate on them, they don't do well. But you can turn that around with just a couple of days of feeding the uh, animal their normal diet of chow. Chow is, no, none of us eat, well, you probably eat rat chow. (laughs) <laughs> I didn't want to say that, but it's true. Do you still have pica? I think you still do. Yeah. I, ju- I just will say one of my low points, I think, during my internship, when you're just like scavenging for food in the middle of the night, one of the nurses walked in and I was eating some patient's gastric bypass diet that, <laughs> that we used to use. That was like, a low point. Yeah, it was a low point. But here's, here's the problem. Here's, here's, here's mouse chow. It's plant-based, almost no fat and all fiber. We don't eat that. Mm. And a lot of our patients, they're not morbidly obese, but, you know, they eat a Western diet. They got a little pooch. They got a little hyperglycemia. And, you know, they're eating a high-fat, low-fiber diet. And what's interesting, and I learned this from uh, the world's expert who gave a talk at University of Chicago, who came from Scotland, Harry Flint. He, I showed him our data and he said, you can turn that around in days. Maybe it'll take two, three, four days. I go, no, for, for a mouse, six weeks is a really long time. He goes, I go, they're obese, they're hyperglycemic. He goes, I give you two days. And he was right. And so I think 
we're going to reach an era where we screen for bad bugs in their, you know, in their GI tract, you know, multi-drug resistant bad guys. And, and we screen for microbiome readiness and we put them on a prehabilitation type diet. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, they're a little more resilient than, than they are now. I love that. The, the prehab microbiome. What a great, what yeah. a great idea. My friend was telling me that, uh, in Japan, they sell these toilets that will measure your microbiome and give you the data when you have a poop. So it's like, it's like point of poop. But maybe someday in the longevity strategies, there'll be diet and then the analysis will be microbiome. I know you still have a habit of eating a lot of junk food, but I, maybe this is a halcyon moment for you. You'll just, you know, you'll stop. No, no, my, my body is my temple. I'm going to let you go, I think, but I wanted to ask a couple of quick, funny questions. So if I can, yes. let's see. So I, w- I, I like to ask people who their heroes are. I don't know if you were going to say Feynman or if there's other heroes out there you think of other than me. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. You're more of like a sex symbol than a hero. You, know I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you haven't seen my hair lately. <laughs> yeah. But um, uh, the, 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 the per- you know, I, I don't know that he's a hero as much as, you know, like what are those questions? Are they in Vanity Fair where they say, who would you like to have dinner with? Mm. You know, uh, one person is a man named Richard Dawkins. Do you know who he is? He's a famous uh, evolutionary biologist yeah, from yeah. Oxford. And he wrote a book called The Selfish Gene, which mm-hmm. was written in 1975, which if you haven't read it, you, you need to read it. He's like a hero because he's such a clear thinker, mm-hmm. you know, such a logical, rational person. And he's sort of he's sort of my hero because his books, many of which have been for the lay public, you know, have such a high impact. He's sort of like, you know, Stephen Jay Gould or some of these other authors that have boiled down the complexity of life so that it's understandable to, to everybody. And I think that, I know you've written a book recently, and I'm sorry that I haven't read it. It's just really too expensive for me. I mean, yeah. <laughs> John, yeah. I don't think you, you would understand it, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. can, you, can you have it translated into Spanish for me? Do you think? Yeah, it doesn't okay. have any pictures. Yeah. You're used to scratch and sniff, I know. <laughs> <laughs> this is my last question, and then I know I think you have to go, but... Um, I'm asking it to the surgeons. If you could be any surgical instrument, which one would it be and why? <laughs> the rubber glove and the index finger? Is that what it is? That could be it. Mine is, my answer, which I, I got to think about it, is the Troviejo <laughs> loaded backhand. <laughs> oh, my God. I love that. I love that instrument. Yeah. <laughs> it's so fun to catch up with you. And, uh, you know, for people out there, I, I went, you were really one of my favorite people to work with. And, um, you know, when I have to give those talks about mentors, I know you don't want to be associated with me, but I always. <laughs> well, thank you so much. That's nice to hear. And it was always, uh, it was a blast having you as a resident. And I always wondered, you know, I always worried that when, you know, when you first met my wife, you know, either in some sort of social, you would say to her, you know, when, when Dr. Alverde goes to sleep at night, does he say to you, Watch the pillow, watch the sheet, watch the ice bed, watch the lamp, watch the headboard, watch the remote. I mean, yeah, I was just worried that you would say stuff like that because I'm always goofing around in the office. I love it. being in the aura with you is so great. Obviously, you're a master surgeon, but. All right. Nice talking to you, Josh. Thanks so much for doing this. Okay. Thank you so much.
And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. Invite your friends to listen in if you have any. And if you're feeling generous, rate us on your favorite podcast app, but only if you're going to give us a good rating. It really does make a huge difference. Thank you so much. The Surgery Set is a production from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by J.P. Swenson and me, Josh Mesrich. Quentin Tarantino did not direct it. It was recorded by Josh Mesrich and edited by J.P. Swenson. Visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. Give our Facebook page a like and follow us on Twitter at Wisc Surgery. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app and don't hesitate to let us know any topics you'd like us to cover. Until next time, from all of us here at the set, thank you for listening. You are likely a better person than you were just 30 minutes ago. You are very welcome. Welcome.